This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 402, January the 10th, 1998. This evening, it is our privilege to interview Colonel V. Donor, and we hope before too many months pass to have him uh, regularly uh, producing a couple of uh, tapes a month for the listening audiences. Now, we have with us also Dan Harris, Mark Rushduni, and Andrew Sandlin. At this time, Colonel, we'd like to hear something about uh, what is on your heart. On another occasion, we'd like to deal with your current work, which I feel is some of the most exciting going on anywhere in the world today. But at present, we're going to deal with your background as a leader in the conservative movement in the United States. Do you want to introduce us to your history there? Surely. Um, and because this is really appropriate, because I think um, at, with um, this particular uh, easy chair, we're going to be discussing the uh, demise of the conservative movement. Uh, we were joking earlier that uh, perhaps we should title this tape, uh, R.J. Rushduni pronounces the conservative movement DOA, uh, dead on arrival. Uh, but in con uh, following up um, a uh, earlier uh, issue of Chalcedon Magazine, which was devoted to the future of the conservative movement, and we should add a that issue, of, which was the January issue, will be turned into a monograph um, in early uh, 98. Um, the, it's appropriate that I give a few min, uh, moments of my background in the conservative uh, uh, movement because to criticize a movement, I, it, one has much more, I think, um, credibility if, if one was part of it. And for uh, a person that's not too old, I haven't hit 50 yet, uh, I've been in the conservative movement uh, an awfully long time, over three decades. Um, I started out in 1963. Uh, and that was, by my count, about 35 years ago. Um, and of course, about 14. And uh, by 1966, which was 32 years ago, over three decades, I was already a national youth leader uh, for uh, the renowned Billy, Dr. Billy James Hargis, that some of, your li some of our listeners will remember. And for those of you who uh, weren't around in that era, uh, Dr. Hargis was the uh, prototype um, for Jerry Falwell. Uh, and Hargis and McIntyre, Carl McIntyre, were the two great radio uh, evangelists, Christian anti-communist evangelists of their age, uh, and very much into the anti-communist movement. Um, and and uh, from that point on, from 1966 uh, through um, through 1986, as you know, Rush, and we published in the magazine, uh, I essentially spent those 20 years uh, with Ronald Reagan uh, in all of in every one of his campaigns, um, and even when he was out of office, uh, working with him in one capacity or the other. Um, deeply involved in all aspects of the Republican Party, worked professionally for the party, directed its branches in Orange County, California, which of course is one of its strongest units in the entire country, uh, edited its publications, 
um, worked for another name that uh, you know, uh, Rush, and some of our listeners will remember, Dr. Stuart McBurney, mm -hmm. who was kind of the Billy James Hargis for California, although he probably would not appreciate the comparison. Um, but nevertheless, McBurney was very big uh, all over California uh, in the um, in the 70s, which when I worked for him as a young college graduate, university graduate. Um, and uh, then um, in the late 70s founded uh, Christian Voice, which most of our listeners will be familiar with. The people that started the, uh, we were the ones that invented the report card on how congressmen vote on moral issues. Um, and the biblical, presidential biblical scoreboard, which was a full color magazine that I think every evangelical in America has seen at one time or the other that contrasted uh, Walter Mondale and, uh, and um, Ronald Reagan and um, then went on from there to be the uh, chairman for uh, actually for both of Ronald Reagan's presidential campaigns. Uh, I was in charge of, uh, of um, uh, uh, motivating and um, organizing the, uh, the evangelical vote uh, behind the Reagan candidacy. So uh, and we could go on and on and on. That's just a thumbnail sketch to show that I've been deeply rooted uh, in the movement. We could, you know, throw out many more names from French Schwartz on down to, you know, establish uh, that conservative record. And you were really considered a spokesman for the movement. You've been on a number of national TV shows and interviewed. Could you go through that quickly? Quick? I know you're on Dan Rather's. Oh, I was been interviewed on every network <coughs> news show and uh, all special features, 60 Minutes, Phil Donahue, uh, you know, 2020, uh, in Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, and several hundred newspapers, and I think there's two dozen books now, most of them attacking uh, my work uh, with Christian Voice uh, in the 80s. My favorite, I, I like the titles, they're called The Radical Right. My favorite title is called God's Bullies. <coughs> but uh, the God's Bullies work did say that our, our Christian Voice group was the most effective of all of the early first wave Christian right organizations. Uh, I was kind of the Ralph Reed of the 1980s, and an uh, interesting story is Ralph Reed, as a 21-year-old student, was an intern in my office uh, there in Washington, D.C., and one of the first things he did was to ask me if he could take a lot of our report cards and distribute them. And it's interesting that 15 years later, uh, Ralph Reed with Pat Robertson becomes the biggest distributor in the nation of, you know, of uh, those sorts of report cards. I've heard you, um, oh, I'm sorry, Rush, go ahead if you'd like. You had an office in the White House in the Reagan years, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, I can't, yeah, right, a campaign office, right. Uh, I've heard you described as the architect of the religious right or Christian right in the 70s, and eschewing all false modesty, you think, but there's probably a great deal of truth in that. I mean, you were one of the key players in uh, in this uh, sort of resurgence of Christian politics in the 70s. Wouldn't that be a fair characterization? Well, it's hard to be modest answering that question, but the media... It was a set-up question. Yeah, the, the, thank you. I'll pay you for that. Uh, the media characterized... There were, three, there were a number of Christian right organizations in the 80s, but the, as the media characterized what they called the big three, the big three was moral majority, which of course everybody knew because Jerry Falwell had such a high profile from his TV show. Um, the second group was Christian Voice, uh, my group. And then the third group was called the American Coalition for Traditional Values, which was a coalition of TV ministers that um, was chaired by Tim LaHaye and had been set up by myself and my staff at, at Christian Voice. So to answer your question, of, out of what the media called the big three organizations of the Christian right, um, 
I was the um, co-founder uh, with um, two other gentlemen of two of those three groups and ran the um, and helped to run the political strategy for, for both of those groups. Well, with that foundation laid, that uh, sort of biographical foundation, uh, when we talk about sort of the collapse of the or failure of the conservative movement, um, let's start by asking, um, do you think that the conservative movement went awry? What's wrong with the conservative movement, or was it bad from the start? Uh, let's just sort of jump in here with both feet and see where this thing goes. And, and also, obviously, in light of your 10-page uh, epistle I think you had in the January issue, um, Andrew, invite you to uh, do the same. You had some wonderful observations. Yeah, I think um, when you say, did it go awry from the start, as you wrote and I wrote and many other people are writing, um, the problem with the conservative movement really was that it never had a world view. Uh, we didn't have time to have a worldview. We didn't even have a political philosophy, let alone what we would understand as a Christian worldview. So it was only basically a reactionary movement. Uh, well, it really was, and the left would constantly criticize us as a bunch of reactionaries. Of course, in one way, there's nothing wrong with being a reactionary. If somebody is kicking you in the you know, groin uh, or the head, then you want to react to defend yourself. So reaction is not a bad thing in and of itself. But if you're only reacting, in a defensive mode, then that is a problem. But as I mentioned in the uh, article in the uh, January issue, I'm not blaming us. I don't want our listeners to think I'm being critical for our lack of worldview at that point or our uh, reactionism, because uh, communism was about to devour uh, the whole world. We didn't have time to develop worldviews, at least we didn't think we did. Uh, we didn't have time uh, to, um, to be anything less than react against this tremendous menace. We saw gobbling up country after country, and then, of course, what was going on in the 60s and 70s uh, in our public schools and in our communities, uh, the little conservative movement was very overwhelmed. Um, and so other than, you know, it's interesting that people like Dr. Rush Dooney, uh, Francis Schaeffer, a few others, they're redeveloping uh, uh, worldviews, and Francis Schaeffer getting, I think, most of his from, from uh, Rush Dooney. Um, but the point is that activists like myself, I didn't even read Rush Dooney. Uh, and until, uh, or Schaefer, you know, until well into uh, um, probably the, uh, the mid-80s. Uh, I think I met Rush in 86, and that's probably when I started reading him. Um, so the point, why, why do I say that, is because other activists like myself were so busy in the trenches, or so busy winning elections. We didn't even know people like Rush Dooney or Schaefer or some other thinkers. We didn't even know they existed. We were just too busy trying to keep America free. And um, then with the final re-election of uh, Ronald Reagan in 1984, um, we began to feel that we'd set the country on a good um, a course of action, at least concerning the Soviet threat. And then, of course, the Soviet Union, as we knew it anyway, uh, collapsed, I believe, in 1989. And um, uh, then I think some of us, at least myself, had time to begin investigating this thing called worldview. So anti-communism was really... Uh a big glue that held this sort of disparate coalition together. It, it was almost not what you were for as much as what you were really united against, a, a common enemy. Is that a fair... Right, and, and 
perhaps you should enunciate that word a little more carefully for our listening audience, because I think it, you're not seeing desperate coalition, you're no, seeing no, no, disparate no, no, no. coalition. Exactly, a group of different people, very, very diverse, very exactly. diverse, great diversity thrown together. Because you have a number of the conservatives were natural law, the Roman Catholic natural law group, then of course the libertarians, and virtually the only one at the time, or the only one of any prominence discussing an explicitly Christian or biblical approach was Rush, of course, right. which was biblical law. Other than communism, what about domestic policy? What was, where did your domestic policy come from? There wasn't a lot of free market economics, was there, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that conservative movement at the time? I mean, uh, primarily. Well, I don't know. It's an interesting question, Mark. Um, it's like I'm trying to I'm trying to think. You probably have an opinion because uh, I mean you've been in the movement. What do you think? I mean, I'll answer the question. You want me to answer the question? What do you or do you have, you have the answer? Kind no, of in go mind. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, again, it's kind of hazy. I mean, I know we were very concerned with domestic things because it was always uh, you know the government was getting bigger and bigger and encroaching on us. Um, and but I, I think it was to some degree we were against whatever the liberals were for, um, and and so you know if they I, well let's see I mean I remember from the civil rights program, uh, you know we're against that probably primarily because the liberals were for it in '64. Uh, then there was everything from fluoride fluoride in the water uh, to food stamps to welfare to airbags and cars. Which interestingly enough, now they're telling us that airbags kill people. I remember in the 70s, we as a conservative movement were viewed as nuts because we said those things are going to kill people. So I mean, we did have a lot of domestic we did have a lot of domestic issues, um, but I think it was mostly feeling. Uh, that, uh, I mean, we complain about FDR and how he encroached on government and, of course, LBJ and the Great Society. They're aware, and I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud because you asked this question which I've never thought about. I think we were really, there were a lot of those issues that we were upset about, but the issue that drove us, see, I wasn't worried about those issues killing me and my family. Um, I mean, I was, uh, yeah, negative on it and uh, many things we could say, but I wasn't worried about being put in a concentration camp. I led the movement for 30 years out of my fear that I and my family and my friends would end up in concentration camps. It was that clear. I mean, fluoride in the water or the Great Society, yeah, that was a problem. But getting shoved in a concentration camp was a far greater problem. So my point being, for many of us on the right, not all of us, but for many of the activists, the motivating thing was this tremendous, uh, and I think well-founded, fear of communism. Very interesting. Yes, sure, good. To Dan. elaborate on your fear of communism, did you perceive infiltration by foreign agents into our government, or just the, ad the adoption of communist philosophy by, by Americans who are maybe deceived? Well, um, good question, Dan. Uh, no, like any good right-winger, I was very aware of the infiltration be in the beginning with Elger Hiss and, and an entire cadre of communists beginning with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, uh, and then, of course, what we would call the fellow travelers, uh, which we're convinced both Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy were, uh, or at least their top, if they weren't, at least their top aides were, in terms of people that for either consciously or unconsciously, either in a malignant form or, uh, or a naive form, were, were um, developing government policies to enable the communists to win. 
Uh, and so we felt that our own government was very actively betraying us. And that's, that was a great source of our fear and our anger, I think. Um, Which would feed into basically the uh, um, uh, fear of big government as far as a domestic policy. And generally, Reagan's, uh, um, uh, particularly Reagan's idea was, let's get government off the backs of the people. Right. And if you believe government's basically not being friendly to our preserving us from communism, and government has not been our friend, giving them government more power, is that the kind of the thinking that that brought in? I'm, I'm looking for this domestic policy here again. It's just basically getting distrust of big government in general. Right. Well, the concern, but see, I want to get on because Reagan did something differently, but um, for us in the hardcore right, there was also this suspicion that if the commies didn't get us from the outside, that our own government may become totally socialist, which is what you're driving at. There was that fear, but I think it was a secondary fear. Um, but certainly we had a lot of literature about how our own government was gobbling up our freedom. What Reagan did differently, I think, is, I mean, he clearly won on a campaign, amongst other things, of getting government off our back, but he was able to broaden the appeal outside the hardcore conservative movement, outside of the right wing, to the average person, the average blue-collar worker, the average uh, shopkeeper, or the average housewife, um, by explaining to them that government was getting too big and encroaching. He, he, made, he made big government a mainstream issue for the first time. For the first time, it became popular, or acceptable anyway, to criticize big government. And there were many factors, I think, for that, but including just it was time. But, you know, Reagan um, knew how to capitalize on that theme, uh, and that was a theme as well as communism that was very close to his heart. But I don't think he won fighting communism. That's my point. He won by complaining about big government. And, and he won just enough of the American people over to that point of view to uh, get himself uh, elected. I know some of our listeners may not understand how a Christian can be involved in politics. They feel maybe it's uh, a dirty business or something like that. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you became a Christian, and how you, maybe it was not a difficulty for you to apply your faith into the public arena? Um, well, um, and probably our subscribers don't have that question, but they may have some friends or relatives listening, <laughs> and they may have that question. Uh, and actually, um, I, I must confess that essentially, I was in the political business you know, long before I became a Christian. So I was not really a, uh, a Christian uh, or a Christian leader for sure that decided then to get into politics. Although, of course, hundreds or thousands of, of um, I should say hundreds, I think, of, of pastors in particular or Christian leaders did decide during this time to jump into the political arena, probably from the biblical basis of uh, you know, being salt and light which is also how I rationalized my, my, once I became a Christian, it was then seeing a mandate in terms of uh, salt and light, and just knowing the communists were a bunch of atheists, and, and putting everybody in a concentration camp and executing them didn't seem to me to be a way to promote Christianity. So it, it, it made sense to try to, again, defeat this very athe this intensely anti-Christian uh, uh, force. And one of the things that I realized very early on was communism's intense hatred, uh, uh, its, its demonic hatred for all things Christian. 
just uh, one other thing. From your 35 years in the, the Christian, right, how much of the uh, of that movement do you think is, uh, of the conservative movement is Christian, and how much is perhaps people who are just, uh, patriotic Americans who may or may not have a Christian leaning? You mean, people seem to put the Christian and the right together, uh, whereas I would imagine a number of people within the conservative movement perhaps are not necessarily Christian. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I am probably not capable, and I don't know anybody is to quantify that. But the the divisions are, which perhaps we'll talk about in this interview, because it's fascinating. Now you have the Christian right, so we all know what that is. I assume you know whether it was my old organizations or today the Christian Coalition or your various pro-life groups, etc. Um, then you have um, the remnants of an old conservative movement that was secular. This would be the human events crowd, uh, the American Conservative Union, all which I used to work with and be part of, uh, organizations of like that, probably William F. Buckley's National Review, well, to some degree. Um, then you have the libertarians. Uh, and now you have this new phenomenon, it's not really new, but it's coming to the fore, being more carefully examined, of the neoconservative camp. Um, and then you have just economic conservatives who are really just country club conservatives who are very pro-free enterprise. They're not really <coughs> libertarians. They're not uh, because they, they don't go with all the libertarian dogma. Uh, they're not neocons because they're not intellectuals. They're just businessmen that want to make a lot of money and don't want the government to bother them. So you have now probably at least a half dozen of, of these camps and, and to get back to our earlier point that Andrew was driving at, what, what was the tie that bound us together in the, these groups? Because in one way, these groups have pretty much all been active, even in the 60s, certainly in the 70s and 80s. What, what, would, what in the world would tie together or make bedmates, if you would, of libert antinomian libertarians and Billy James Hargis fundamentalists? What would bring us all together and everybody in between? The threat of communism uh, and feeling besieged domestically by a big government that was not friendly. Um, so knowing that we were so small in number and seeing this whole threat out there, we put aside our differences. So a, libertar a gay libertarian would stand next to a fundamentalist pastor and march together against you know this threat of communism. Of course, probably the gay libertarian would have to not mention he was gay, but um, anyway, you know, don't tell, don't ask. Um, so in any case, uh, what has happened now um, with the, the, which I think we want to get into is what's happening now with the conservative movement is that when communism collapsed in 1989, at least communism in the Soviet Union, um, that there was no longer this cement that held together this, as Andrew said, disparate movement, this very diverse movement. And now the movement slowly, since 89, has begun not only to go in its different directions, but indeed to turn on each other. And that's where the, what's, that's what's getting interesting. Some conservatives, in fact, think that it was during the Ronald Reagan administration that the conservative vision was betrayed. And it was betrayed, first of all, they say, by the neoconservatives. Now, let's talk about the neoconservatives. I guess I'll begin by saying, basically, there were 60s liberals uh, who saw some of the excesses of radical liberalism and uh, decided that they sort of uh, wanted to reignite their vision in the conservative camp. 
Um, I'm not going to mention any names. I'll let Colonel do that if he wants to. But uh, especially in the in the 80s, they came uh, to represent the spokesman for the conservative movement. They got the foundation money. They tended to have uh, great thinkers. And uh, today, when people say conservative, they generally think of these people on on TV and radio. A lot of the other conservatives, aptly called paleo or old dinosaur, you know, conservatives, oppose them. And of course, people like Calcedon. But if that's the case, then, then let's talk um, uh, about these neoconservatives and where the movement is today. In other words, let's update your story, Colonel, from the 80s up to today, beginning with the neoconservatives. Well, first of all, you've been, for some reason, far too kind to the neocons. You refer to them as 60s liberals, which is a very charitable description, because as we all, that's true, but actually probably the most prominent ones were actually Marxists. Uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, who then in the 50s and 60s transitioned into what we would call classic liberal Democrats. Um, or for those of you that remember Senator Scoop Jackson from uh, Washington, we called them uh, Jackson Democrats or Truman Democrats. Why did we call them that? Because they were liberal in every sense of the word except they hated communism because they had formerly been Marxists and they realized what, what communism was. So if you chose 10 issues, they would be liberal on nine, just like you would understand liberal today. But on communism, you know, they wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. So because of that, uh, when these people came into the conservative movement, we, we welcomed them. We welcomed them with open arms because they all had PhD behind their names. And we didn't have any PhDs other than Rush Dooney and one or two others, perhaps. Um, so these and ne neocons were not only PhDs, but they were brilliant writers, um, high-quality intellectuals um, that um, were accepted by the nation's media. They didn't, you know, they didn't laugh. At, the media did not laugh at them. The media did not uh, call them Klansmen. The media was, uh, uh, gave them a respectable hearing. So we said, hey, these guys will really help our cause against communism. So we opened our arms uh, to the neocons and by, uh, and, and fascinatingly, uh, and they, they, they began supplying the intellectual capital for the conservative movement in the late 70s. They were very prominent in the Reagan administration, which is another issue itself, which I'd like to touch on what happened with Reagan. That was fascinating and a tragic story. But the neocons by the end of the 80s or by the mid-80s had, had totally displaced the old conservative movement and run off most of the hard line, uh, what you refer to now as paleoconservatives. So now we have uh, the conservative movement, so-called, at least the intellectual part of it, including now uh, National Review magazine, the Weekly Standard magazine, uh, the big conservative foundations, which would be the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Hoover Institution. They've all been taken, and we could go on, uh, all been taken over by these neoconservatives. Uh, now, we should talk about what their agenda is because people will say, well, what are these guys after now, right? Yeah, um, just a little more on, the, on this side. Go back, you talked about the tragedy of Ronald Reagan and that administration. In the next couple of minutes, can you maybe do that and then we'll get back to the neoconservatives? The tragedy is that even when Christians elected a person like Ronald Reagan, what we got uh, was um, people that hated us, hated the Christian right. Um, you mean his appointees, in other words? 
Well, not just, you know, his appointees were neocons who we might say, you know, <coughs> did not share an agenda with us other than communism, but I was actually just reading some more mem memoirs from the Reagan administration uh, last night, and the more I, and I, I'm reading all of my friends from the Reagan administration have written their little stories, and the more I take time to read their stories and reflect on my years with Reagan, uh, I know they're right, and basically what they're, um, I was just reading last night, refreshing my memory because it's been a while that Mike Deaver you know that the Reagan White House was controlled by Nancy Reagan number one okay Nancy Reagan was a liberal socialite dilettante that hated well I shouldn't say hated that's that's probably too strong of a word uh, who was very ill-disposed uh, you know, to anything Christian or anything that would all be controversial. She didn't want Reagan touching anything controversial that might hurt his image. Mike Deaver was her man in the White House, and Mike Deaver controlled Reagan's schedule, okay? Uh, Mike Deaver, once we got him elected, Reagan elected, Deaver would not let Reagan go to 90% of the conservative events or strategy meetings that he was invited to. We did have our own people on White House staff, but they didn't have the power, and every time we would make a request um, to get Reagan to do something, um, he would, his presence would be denied to us, denied us by, by uh, Mike Deaver. Um, and then Jim Baker, who was the chief of staff, believed that uh, for Reagan to associate with Christian right in any way would demean Reagan's uh, status. Um, incidentally, Deaver would tell his staff, don't ask me to deliver Reagan on anything that doesn't have to do with the economy. That's the only issue we care about is the economy. So they're no different than, than Bill Clinton's uh, uh, White House, really. Uh, as a um, just last thought on uh, Mike Deaver and the economy, why this is important is, see, is to show the secular mindset, even the secular conservative mindset, um, is that they were sure they were doing the right job for Reagan. All Nancy and Deaver and Jim Baker wanted to do was re-elect Reagan, and the only issue they thought would do that was the economy. So they just didn't care about any other issue. The Christian right was actually regarded by them as very dangerous because they knew that Reagan himself sympathized with us, and they did not want Reagan publicly associated with us because it would have hurt his re-election uh, chances. And then in the second um, term, it would have hurt his historical legacy. So what you have is that the Republicans, who the secularists that control the party, will never uh, allow anything substantial be given to us by a president because they believe those issues like abortion, uh, you know, even crime, those things are, are basically uh, irrelevant. So let's go back to the neocons who in effect are the leading, are considered to be the leading conservatives in the conservative movement today. What is in essence the neocon agenda and how does it differ from the earlier conservative agenda? Well, um, there's tremendous difference. First of all, as they say, they're an oxymoron because they, they consider themselves conservative big government um, proponents. 
They believe in a well-managed society. They believe in big government, but they want it efficient. So they believe in welfare. It's just that welfare should be managed efficiently. It should be pared down. It should be managed more competently. These people are basically, you know, intellectual technocrats, and they simply believe that they they can run a, a government, a social welfare government, more competently than than liberal Democrats do. Um, they probably their model would be uh, some of the European democracies, what we call the social democrats uh, or the Christian democrats, which are quasi, um, you know, mixed economy, quasi socialist governments. Um, uh, internationally, they would differ from the old line conservatives because the old line conservatives tend to be pretty isolationist, like let's not get involved in wars unless, of course, it's to stop communism. Um, but, you know, let's not see ourselves as a Woodrow Wilson, uh, uh, you know, world policeman type. And the neocons are very much into an internationalist agenda exporting li what they, liberal democracy, which is what we have here, a pluralistic, secular, liberal mm -hmm. democracy to every country in the world. And the irony there, we should point out, is that that's precisely what uh, the many of the Democrats want, including the present president. Well, that's why there's that's why there's no that's why we've been talking about in the magazine and in these upcoming two <coughs> monographs that we have mine on the uh, demise of the Republican Party and this other one on the uh, um, the uh, future of conservatism. What we're saying is that the people who are running the conservative movement, at least the neocon end of it, and the Republican Party, are now essentially um, in agreement with the centrist Democrats. And, of course, there's divisions of the Democratic Party, too, mm -hmm. but I would say that the majority of the Democratic Party, which is um, centrist-oriented, and the majority of the Republican Party are now in agreement, leaving mm -hmm. conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans and Christian rightists out on the periphery. And, and the question is, can we somehow find each other and, and, and link up? as a third force to offset this merger of the Republican and Democrats, which incidentally I'm now referring to as the Remocrat Party. Yeah. You combine the word Republican and Democrat, mm -hmm. you have the Remocrats. So what are the practical implications of this neocon takeover to the Re Republican Party? Let's take the 1994 so-called Republican Revolution that really seems to have peered out quite effectively. Uh, well, that's a good illustration because the, the Newt Gingrich's Republican Revolution was built on the contract with America, which we could call a conservative document. So they won on a conservative agenda with a conservative document. Within a year after winning, they've totally backed away from that document and gone with a neoconservative agenda, which mm -hmm. is just trimming the sales of government ever so slightly mm -hmm. uh, and, and balancing a budget largely through smoke and mirrors. It's not really a balance. And sending troops to Bosnia. Yeah. Uh, the neocons have totally taken over the agenda. And, and what is the, and the neocon strength again is just the intellectual side, you're saying, and the foundation money. They, they tend to have the ear of the politicians, you're saying, basically, right? Well, because because the conservative members of Congress, as I just wrote in a January issue of the report, do not have a worldview and have never had time to develop one, they have to go somewhere to get intellectual direction. Okay, they're not congressmen are not intellectuals, uh, and they don't understand, uh, you know, that bears policy. Repeating. Right. Well, I think we all know that. I actually, again, hit that. You know, I mean, yeah. congressmen are just average people. I mean, they real estate broker, a farmer, a rancher, whatever, that get elected to Congress. Uh, and, you know, a dentist, et cetera, a chiropractor, whatever. And uh, most of them have never even read, uh, you know, 
know um, any book on philosophy or theology or worldview, let alone developed one. And so when they get in Congress, they're aware that they do need guidance. And where are they going to go for guidance? They turn to the so-called think tanks and the conservative think tanks. But these think tanks have now been controlled by, taken over by the neocons. And if you read, as I do, the journals of these think tanks and see the policy papers put out, just like our friend Mike Deaver, 95% of the issues they deal with are either um, uh, trimming government, you know, kind of uh, micromanaging government a little bit better, or are to do with the economy. <coughs> there are no, you know, papers out on what we would call, or very few papers out on, you know, on moral issues. So you talked earlier about where Christians need to go and how we need to address this issue of politics, especially now with the balkanization, if you may use that term, of the Republican Party. Uh, well, you and I have written, and various others have written in the Chalcedon Report about the fact that the conservative movement is, is really not Christian. Uh, overall, it's not Christian. And we could go into that at length. But um, so where do you suggest that, uh, where do you suggest that we go? What are the weaknesses, and where do you suggest that we go? Well, um, what we need to do, I think, is our, our, our movement needs to gain some critical mass. And as the old, cons as the Republican coalition breaks up and the, cons and the uh, Democratic coalition is also breaking up, um, and the conservative coalition is breaking up. So we have to realize that this is what's happening. And then we have to say, and this is what we've been writing about in the Cal State <coughs> report, is how can we link up with other elements which are friendly to us? In other words, how can we as the Christian right uh, link up just not with the old remnant of the conservative party, conservative movement, which is very small, but how can we link up with conservative Democrats, you know, conservative Southern Democrats? How can we link up with uh, independent voters, the voters that went for Perot, who are basically populists, but who are very conservative economically and very conservative religiously? And whether they're, you know, uh, our sort of a denomination or not, you know, is not the point. The point is, is that they're certainly culturally, um, uh, not only culturally conservative, but would really um, stand um, very firm on what we would consider traditional uh, generic Christian values, which is a lot more than you can say for the secular conservatives or, or the neocons. Um, and I could go on, which I do in these articles, um, and in our upcoming monograph uh, for Chalcedon, uh, to kind of pinpoint uh, these different uh, subsets of the Democratic Party. See, the this is fascinating. The Democratic Party has found that 28% of their voters are basically Christian right, uh, is basically have Christian right values. Uh, they call them, but they did not, the Democratic Party could not bring itself to call these people Christian conservatives. So what they call them is they're suburban value voters. <laughs> Suburban uh -huh. values. Now, what is a suburban value? Well, it's what the Republicans would, call, Republicans would call traditional values. But again, the Democrats couldn't admit that they had any people that liked traditional values or Christian values, so they call them suburban values. I ask you, do suburbs create values? Hmm. Of course not. But Christians who live in suburbs have values. So the Democrats have discovered that 28% of their people, uh, which mostly I'm sure are Southerners, uh, share uh, values that would be very similar to. Uh, 
uh, to the Christian right. So we, we need to find ways of linking up with these people, linking up with the, the people that voted for Ross Perot, the 20% uh, 20, the 20 of the vote that went for Ross Perot. Um, and of course, this was actually Pat Buchanan's strategy instead. I, I was about to ask, uh, how does the Pat Buchanan um, phenomenon really demonstrate the deep-seated ideological differences in the conservative movement? Because it's, it's no longer an issue of Dole and Quayle, who, for example, would agree on most of the basic issues. Isn't Pat coming from a completely different, older conservative perspective, um, almost a different party perspective? Um, how do you how do you gauge that phenomenon and how he was treated, for instance, by large Christian organ Christian political groups in the last primary? Well, Buchanan, I think, represents a sort of a catalyst that that um, I'm talking about that is needed to pull together. And he sees himself as this somebody who can pull together the populists and the Christian right and the conservative Democrats and and so forth. Uh, that's why what was interesting with Buchanan. I've never seen anything like it. Is the unanimity with which the Republican Party itself, very fractured, opposed him. Everybody, right. all the leaders of the Republican Party, the moderates, the liberals, the neoconservatives, which supposedly represented the conservative wing. So I'm talking Bill Bennett, Jack Kemp, the uh, country clubbers, stood up with Colin mm -hmm. Powell and and Lamar and uh, uh, Lamar Lamont Alexander and, and the whole spectrum said, if this man gets our nomination, we won't even vote for him. Well, that's unheard of to make that sort of a statement, particularly. A, across that wide of a spectrum. So what it tells you is that the, cons the Republican establishment was deathly afraid of Buchanan. I recently um, talked with Pat and he told me that his experience showed him that the Republican establishment would rather lose with one of their own, like Bob Dole, than to win with somebody from the outside like him, like himself. Okay, now why is that? because they want to maintain control, and they knew, in Pat's words, I asked Pat that, and Pat said, look, if I'd gotten a nomination, I would have brought into the party um, Rush Dooney's people, the Christian right, the Perot people, uh, the independents, the populists, I would have brought all of them in. And he says, and the power structure in the party knew that, and they don't want to lose their positions of power. Their positions are more important than, than, the, than, uh, than the issues at hand. That's an interesting, uh, interesting way of looking at it. There were a couple of questions I think that one of you guys wanted to ask. One uh, gets the impression you focused a lot on the, uh, the anti-communist uh, aspect of the conservative movement and communism ending in 89 you mentioned several times what has been the focus of your efforts i guess since the end of the reagan era and the end of uh, communism what what have you done uh, in the conservative movement um did you work with the bush campaign or with, with buchanan or no i have to say i bailed out on the bush campaign <coughs> and um as actually i pretty well um uh of course that election was 88 and i i did um actually i I did some things. I was active in the California political process. Um, I gave some help to the Robertson campaign that was uh, in 88. It was one of his advisors uh, for a limited amount of time. He crashed and burned pretty early. But um, then as uh, many of our listeners do know, um, I wrote the book The Samaritan Strategy at that point, 88, 89, which was a critique of what went wrong with the Christian right. And, um, and then from there, um, kind of devoted myself to a reconstruction work in third world countries, 
which uh, Dr. Rush Dooney has been uh, so generous in sharing um, much of our work uh, in the magazine over the years. Uh, and um, just now, um, perhaps I'd say 10 years almost from actively withdrawing from the political process, uh, have I gotten back in. And my debut has really been this series of articles I wrote for the Chalcedon Report on the demise of the Republican Party, which will be again published as a uh, monograph uh, in the next uh, couple of months. Some people feel that uh, <coughs> the conservative movement was, was really milked by the Republican Party in the 1980s. I saw one estimate that they uh, were able to extract in excess of a hundred million dollars from conservatives, primarily conservative Christians, and I know you were involved in fundraising and you saw a lot of the fundraising that went on and how it was used. And could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Do you think we were milked? Or well, I was involved in um, both raising and, sp and spending the money, both ends of it. And um, there is no doubt, not just money, Dan, but the, um, the party uh, and people like Mike Deaver and Jim Baker who run the party and run the White House, um, I could mention many other names, Don Regan, etc. But they um, they milked us all the way along, not just for money, but for our time and our efforts. And there's a number of books written that note that as soon as Ronald Reagan was elected, his top aides immediately purposely distanced himself, distanced Reagan from our movement, and began claiming that our movement had had no significant part in his election. So when Reagan was running. And this is just not Reagan. This is many. You could tell the same story with many conservative senators, uh, and certainly with the Nixon White House. Very similar story with the Nixon White House. Um, that uh, while they're running, they're all for our issues, and their campaign uh, advisors are uh, very uh, uh, willing to uh, get their candidate before us. But then, when they've won, they don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, they they simply and, and again because they have. Matter there's a funny story, Andrew, you were just mentioning uh, the event that kicked off the uh, Christian right um, love affair with Ronald Reagan, which was the um, National Affairs Briefing in Dallas, That's I right. think that it was, was 80. Yeah. James, my friend James Robison, um, uh, whom I briefed, incidentally, it's another little known story, but it used to be my job to brief these TV evangelists like Swaggart and Robison before they would testify before the National Republican uh, committees at the presidential conventions on issues. You know, it's all televised. And we would sit down with these guys and basically say, here's what you need to say, uh, you know, before you go out there. And they would go and do it. Well, in any case, at this Robison thing, this National Affairs Briefing, which is where, Andrew, you just said that uh, the, f the leader of that huge National Affairs Briefing that launched, again, Reagan and the Christian right, uh, mentioned that it was a shame that Dr. Rushton could not be there because Russia's works were responsible for most of the leaders um, being there. Um, but it was at that meeting that Reagan spoke and he, Reagan followed uh, James Robison. Of course, it was James's conference. Uh, most of you, uh, I assume listeners, have seen James Robison on television. And he's an extremely powerful evangelist. Mm -hmm. Some say the, the best evangelist in style, anyway, since uh, Billy Graham. Uh, and, and so James was up doing his usual hellfire and brim, brimstone act, except in a, in a political context. And uh, the thing that I uh, was reading said that Mike Deaver, uh, who had delivered Reagan there, was horrified 
and wondered who, and didn't know who James Robinson was, of course, and wondered what sort of a wild man this was. And he was going to embarrass the candidate because Reagan was up there on the same platform. So just seeing a fundamentalist pastor do his thing was enough to set one of these country club Republicans into deep shock and, and probably confirm Deaver's uh, uh, later tendency to not let Reagan get around Christians any more than was absolutely, uh, uh, you know, necessary. So Christians... Many of them, no doubt, feel, as, as Dan was indicating, feel betrayed in many ways by the Republican Party. Are they? It seems like every four years, though, they take the hook again. Are, you think things are, go things are going to change, though, uh, maybe the next uh, election cycle or the one after that? I mean, are Christians going to wise up? Well, let's put it this way. I just saw some figures that something like a third of the evangelicals just voted for Clinton. So yeah, I've as seen far that as I'm wising up... And probably another third voted for Perot, who's, you know, uh, certainly not, and by any stretch of the imagination, uh, you know, could be considered uh, in, the, in a Christian camp. Um, so whether uh, the majority of the evangelicals were wise up or not, uh, I tend to doubt. But you see, the strategy is not built that I want to develop. Uh, we talk about in our monographs uh, coming out is not to worry about the entire evangelical community but to reach out to to people who are like for instance all the northern ethnic catholics millions of votes who share mm -hmm. our our christian conservative values they're not evangelicals uh southern populace who may be evangelicals and may not be in other words we don't technically need the evangelicals per se right right i mean it's nice to get as many as possible sure. but i'd say maybe we'll end up with uh with maybe if we get lucky half of them and then and then we need to add the the conservative catholics and the conservative populace and so forth to that coalition. The key will be what we use to unite them, what we use as a catalyst, and these are things that our think tank here is dealing with. I was just going to get to that. It seems like the lightning rod for the conservative movement was the anti-communist fervor. You brought that up, and that excited people. Later on, other issues came on board. Rush, you were talking earlier today that you felt that we were reaching a pretty critical stage in our economy and that you didn't think that things could continue on the way they are from a number of things ready to maybe burst at the seams. Do you foresee any possible, maybe a new lightning rod that would come along and, and force people to uh, evaluate their worldview and think about where we are and where we're going? Uh, yes. For a long time, civilization was church-centered, faith-centered. That collapsed. We went to a faith that the saving institution was not the church, but the state. And so you've had the age of humanistic statism in which the state becomes man's savior. That is about at an end. A politician gains success amid uh, all kinds of expectations, and he's barely in office, and the cynicism sets in because people are increasingly disillusioned with politics. On top of that, you now have corruption on an unprecedented scale all over the world. Wherever you look, in every continent, the countries are incredibly corrupt so that uh, politicians in some countries are siphoning not hundreds of billions, but actually in some of the poorest countries, billions of dollars. The disillusionment is very great. 
the state is a failed messiah. So until people come back to a true faith, they're going to wander 40 years or 80 years in the wilderness. So the economic collapse that could set in any time will begin the problem in economics, but it'll spread across the board because whether it's the state or the schools or the economic world or the church world, people feel that everything around them has failed them. How do you dovetail that with Colonel Donor's uh, efforts to perhaps uh, revive the, uh, the Christian right or to re re renew well, their efforts? If they're I being think, cynical, uh, yet you want to bring them back in, is, would there be some perhaps vehicle? Uh, a Christian witness would be better because the term right <laughs> links us with uh, people we no longer agree with, nor uh, do they uh, agree with us. So we're not connected with them. I, I think we need to see an across-the-board Christian emphasis. Now, we've discussed some of these in our conversations today. The Christian school movement, the homeschool movement, a host of other things which tell us here is something that is taking place outside church and state. The homeschool movement someone in a foreign country has said is the fastest growing movement in the world. Mm -hmm. That's outside the control of church or state. Mm -hmm. Now that's what's going to happen. We're going to see new areas, new institutions uh, arising to take the leadership. Now, I had read somewhere that um, after Reagan was elected he had approximately 4,000 people that he could appoint to various positions. And that maybe less than 2% of them had any Christian influence. Seems to be this hope that uh, we'll elect the right people and then they'll appoint the right people. Maybe what you're saying, Rush, is that we need to forget about the top down but work on the bottom yes. up. It has to be a grassroots thing and the homeschool movement certainly is that. We have only a little while left. Uh, Colonel, do you want to take the time to wind up uh, your remarks because I know you could go on at great length. Do we have five minutes or so? Yes, about yes. five minutes. Um, I'll take six. Um, <laughs> I was going to hear that, Bob. Um, producer Bob here. Okay. Um, what I want to just pick up on one thing Dan just mentioned about uh, only one or two percent of the Reagan administration uh, appointees uh, being uh, evangelicals. When Reagan ran, see this is a great example of the betrayal. When Reagan ran, he, matter of fact, at that National Affairs briefing, I think was when he said it, he promised us that we would have the same proportion of appointments in his administration as we represented um, demographically. This is what the Democrats always promised to uh, women and uh, minorities. In other words, if evangelicals are 20% of the country's population, we'd have 20% <coughs> of his appointments. Well, we didn't get 20%, probably got more like 1%. But you know, what? I, the point I wanted to make is it wasn't all the Reagan, <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't all the Reagan staff um, fault. What happened, because we actually had several of our people friendly with the Christian right, 
uh, involved in selecting, uh, nominating people for the Reagan uh, positions, we could not find Christians that had good resumes that were qualified for high-level positions because these Christians had just become politically active a year before they'd spent and so they you know what we had is a bunch of pietists who thought Jesus was going to come in a year and they had not developed a history of, of say either government service or running corporations uh, you know all we had at best was a bunch of ministers with BAs from small Bible colleges and you don't you don't appoint somebody like that to be under secretary or what they call a deputy assistant secretary. We needed people with doctorates. We needed people who were lawyers. We needed people who had managed uh, small companies of 100 employees. You know, uh, we needed professionals. And they simply weren't there. We, you know, we had, you know, people that had, had, had not planned ever to be in leadership. Therefore, they were unqualified the moment that the opportunity opened. Yes. We might have gotten that 10 or 20 percent if we'd had some qualified people. But the people that didn't like us in the Reagan administration were able to look at our people that were on the appointment committee and say, well, you know, well, you don't have any qualified people, so guess what? We're not, you know, you don't get any appointments. And it, it just made our job much more difficult to get, you know, to get Christians in there. Um, so to kind of wrap, wrap things up, I, I do, again, just want to um, ask our listeners to uh, look for, um, I'm not even sure exactly when this tape is going to be released, incidentally. I don't know when, you know, when this go out. I imagine, month. Yeah, okay, so it'll, after you receive this tape, it'll still be a month or two from then that these monographs are released on the future of the conservative movement and uh, the uh, collapse of the Republican Party, but I think it's important you get these, uh, uh, order them by the stack full so they can be distributed to your friends and any people who are activists because what we here at Calcedon want to do, of course we're not a political party, we're not a political organization, uh, but we are a think tank and we want to get people thinking a lot leaders thinking what all the what are the alternatives as the as our political world is changing and shifting what we really need people to realize is that the conservative movement like the Republican Party is intellectually bankrupt most of our people know that about the Republican Party. Now we must recognize it about the conservative movement. They have no worldview. They have really never had a worldview except for a few intellectuals which no, which no one reads. And so now it's our job at Calcedon to begin putting out a Christian worldview that will answer the question that all activists have, which is, is it okay to win? Will we win, and what will we do when we win? The conservative movement and the Republican Party can't answer. We have the answer, but we've got to get it out. Thank you, Colonel, and thank you all for listening, and God bless you.